Ooh, spooky time machine. This is Industry Focus Financials Edition. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. This is Monday, April 25th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining us in the studio today is David Hansen. Thanks for coming. Of course. Good to be back. Yeah, it's really exciting. You used to be on the show two years ago, one and a half years ago. Yep. Years ago. Where the Money Is. Yeah. The, form, the show formerly known as Where the Money Is. Yeah. So I think yeah. I think we were calling it Where the Money Was earlier. Yes. Well, yes. pour one out. <laughs> Um, yeah, David Hansen used to be here um, a couple of years ago, and we decided it would be really cool this week on Industry Focus if we brought on all of the, well, some of the old show hosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so everyone everyone is going to do this this week. I think you have Michael Douglas to look forward to, and I think the energy show isn't going to change. I think Taylor Muckerman has been on that show for forever. Mm-hmm. So I just don't get too excited for Thursday, I guess. Um, anyway, let's talk about what the show was like when you used to be on it. Mm-hmm. What were what were some of the things you used to talk about? Oh, man. Um, so it was Mac Hopenheffer and I, who he has since... He moved to Germany and mm-hmm. runs uh, fool.de, our, our German <laughs> site. Um, so once Matt left, we kind of had to reorganize the show and kind of gave birth to industry focus. But used to be... Uh, I'm sure many of the listeners listened back then, but it used to be five days of all financials. So I'm sure many people are happy that it's just one day now. Um <laughs> That so, sounds really stressful. I was trying to come up with topics for the show, and there's not a lot of news in banking, which is good. Mm-hmm. That's good because normally when there's news in banking, it's bad news. It's like a college buddy who calls you up and they're like, hey, how's it going? It's 3 a.m. I need you to bail me out. And that's like the only time they ever call you out. That's what it's like with banking news. So it's like kind of nice, but it's also kind of stressful for me because I have to come up with things to talk about. So I mean, we we try to keep it fresh. We had a lot of a lot of games. Investing chicken, um, true or false, fool in the blank was was a was an audience favorite. Um, so we kept it fun, but it, it's really good to be back. I've listened to the show, um, all the different segments we have now. So I think it's really cool. Awesome. I think I'm gonna have to talk to you later about about segment. fool in the blank. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty excited about that idea. Um, so I hear that you were really bullish on bank stocks one and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Has that changed? <laughs> It really has not changed. I mean, and if you go in and look at some of the large banks, which I was more of a fan of the mega banks. I was a big uh, bull on JP Morgan around mm-hmm. a year and a half ago. Even even further back then, over the last three years, I've been a fairly big bull on, on the big banks. And when you look at the performance over the last year and a half, you'd be like, I'm glad I didn't listen to that guy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was looking this morning and over the past 18 months, Almost every single big bank is either flat, up five percentage points, down five to ten percentage points. So it's been a really kind of boring year for those stocks, and I guess my portfolio, which is heavily weighted towards um, towards the financial stocks. So I was a big bull on them just from a valuation perspective. There's a lot of there was a lot of pessimism, and I still think there is a lot of pessimism built into the big banks. But some of the catalysts that I was kind of building into my thesis in terms of rates moving higher, yield curve getting a little bit steeper to make more interest income, as I know you and Jay talked about last week, it's just been a tough environment for the big banks that rely almost half of their revenue is, or, or more is from uh, interest from loans. Um, so that has not materialized. I, I mean, we were looking this morning and rates are lower over the past <laughs> year and a half. Than, I mean, that's crazy. Everyone was like, 
10-year treasury can't go lower than two. And now we're 1.7, 1.8, 30-year treasuries under 3%. So these are catalysts that, if they would have gone the other way, I think would have really benefited banks. And you would have seen earnings tick up and the valuation multiples hopefully expand, which was also part, part of the kind of big bank thesis. So those things just haven't really happened. I still think they're they're going to happen, or or I hope they they are will um, for the for the sake of those of the stocks that that I've been a bull on that I own. Well, and not just them, but for the economy in general, because exactly those are signs that the economy is not doing great. It would be good if they went up because it means that we're all we're all doing better. Right, and then we're judging this on a on a year <laughs> and a half basis, which can seem like a long time in investing for cert- for certain things, but. You also have to step back and say, all right, it didn't happen over a year and a half, but that's a pretty short time in kind of the banking cycle. I mean, we're, we're, we're not even to 10 years since, the, since Lehman Brothers and the financial crisis. Yeah. And in the scheme of history, that, I mean, that may take another five years to kind of fully wash out of the system. So it's kind of humbled me from the fact that you can maybe be right on a thesis and maybe it still happens, but getting the timing right and having everything line up exactly when you want it to does not always happen. Um, so I still am a believer in some of the, the things that guided my thesis a year and a half ago on the big banks, um, but it just hasn't happened yet. I still think maybe it's this next year or two years from now, but yeah. I'm still a believer. Your fundamental thesis hasn't changed. Right. Yeah, I, that's one of the things with banking is banking is not tech. Mm-hmm. You know, Things move so fast in tech, and it just doesn't. In banking, there's tons of banks who don't even have a mobile app yet, which seems crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of banks that don't that, that they're not on the internet. Those are those are typically the smaller banks. I was actually looking at a statistic today. Apparently, between 2010 and 2015, only three new banks opened in the United States. Wow, which is crazy because on average it was around 100 banks a year. Mm-hmm. Um, for a really long time, so I mean, it's kind of a sign of what the financial crisis did, but it's still it's very reflective of the kind of the sluggish growth that we've been having just in general in banking. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point that it's just a very different industry, and if you're going to be invested in big banks, small banks, whatever, um, it's just very fundamentally different in terms of what drives the stock price as opposed to healthcare or energy or tech or these industries that can have huge catalysts. I mean. You look at a, a biotech stock that they talk about on the healthcare industry focus. I mean, you can have a fifty percent pop in a day based on some reading or, or finding in the in the process there. But that's just not going to happen with the big banks. It's going to be a a slow march up. Um, I know one of the things that Molly Fool founder David Gardner says is that the stock market takes the stairs up and the elevator down. So when it goes down, it goes down very quick and fast. I mean, banking I think may be very similar to that financial crisis took the elevator way down, and then the stairs are just going to take a lot longer um, to come back up. You're not going to get the huge catalysts that you do in other industries. Yeah, and that's okay. I'm okay with not... Banking is not the sexy sector, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I don't know what we could do. Maybe have some some of the CEOs wear bikinis during conference calls. Maybe that would help. That's terrifying. (laughs) It's a bad idea. Um, Yeah, no, it's, it's still a very interesting field. Um, the other thing that I was reading is that apparently uh, consolidation has increased amongst banks, and I think that's mostly due to the regulatory requirements. Banks are required to have so much capital on hand that it's just hard 
for smaller banks to survive in this regulatory kind of environment. Um, the other the, the other piece of news that I saw today about small banks is uh, there was this guy, oh, what was his name? He used to work for Warren Buffett, and he kind of left under a, a haze of like something fishy happened with their stock trading. I know what you're talking about. His name escapes me as well at the moment, but yeah, yeah. it was a couple years ago. Uh-huh. Well, he is actually out in Virginia now, and he owns a controlling, well, maybe not a controlling interest. He owns a huge interest in Middleburg Bank, which mm-hmm. is a local bank. Um, and he is pushing to get them bought by someone else because he says that anyone under $2 billion can't survive. And I think to the average person, you hear $2 billion and you're like, well, mm-hmm. it's a lot of money. But right. in banking, it's really nothing. No, when you're dealing with <clears throat> balance sheets that have trillion dollar asset bases in, in a JP Morgan or Bank of America, I mean, $2 billion is a rounding error for them, right? Um, and, and kind of on the consolidation in, in those banks, big banks becoming bigger. Um, that scares some people, and there there are obvious downsides to that. It's very hard to understand everything that's going on in banks as they consolidate and get bigger. And I know you and Jay talked about that last week too. I think you mentioned Citigroup. You were like, I look at Citigroup's 10K, and it's like, what in God's name is this business, and, and what's going on in here? But I think there is a benefit to that as well that the perceived complexity or the actual complexity of these big banks may artificially depress the valuations that they're getting as well. Um, and maybe that's always going to be an overhang. But I think if you if you take the other side of that, it may be a benefit that you're saying like, all right, there's this bank out here that has a lot of earnings power, Citigroup, JP Morgan, Bank of America. They can generate, they have the potential to generate returns on equity over 10%. But because they're so complex in the short run and people don't kind of fully understand where all of that's coming from, you may, you can pay less for it. So I think there is a balance there of like, okay, you have the complexity of a Citigroup, but you're getting a discount because of that complexity, as opposed to a a small bank that you may look at and say, oh, I understand exactly what they do. They're only in West Virginia doing this type of loan. And that lack of complexity, you're going to probably have to pay more for that on the valuation side. So right. and- I, don't, I don't fully say complex bank, bad, never buy it. I think you're always paying for it regardless whether there's a lot of complexity or not. Yeah, and as we've been seeing with the oil patch banks, that lack of diversity can really hurt a bank um, in in the long term right. if, if things go sour for them. I think that what we should do one day, I don't know if you listen to the episode with Tim Hansen, who mm-hmm. is a huge small bank guy, we should have a Hansen v. Hansen day. I think oh, man. that would be great. I actually thought, we have a lot of Hansons at the office. I thought it'd be hilarious to put all the Hansons in one room. I think there'd be six people, and only maybe three of them are qualified to actually talk <laughs> about stocks. That's okay, though. <laughs> Everyone could just give their opinion. Well, um, kind of as a throwback to your throwback days, I thought that we should play Two Truths and a Lie. Okay. Um, this, for listeners who haven't been in college recently or gone to summer camp or anything like that, Two Truths and a Lie, it is exactly what it sounds like. I'm going to tell David Hansen two truths and a lie, and he has to pick out which one is which. Okay, go. Do you think Are these all banking related, or these, is this well, just like life? Oh, well, I could tell you two truths and a lie about me. Let's go. Let's stay in the banking zone. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Better idea. I have, I have, they're financially related is what it is. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Do you remember Countrywide? Yes. Okay. Well, um, of course. <laughs> Just in case. I, I used. I worked at, I don't know if you know this, I worked at Bank of America before I worked here. No, um, I did not know that. So, yes, very, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't buy Countrywide. I wasn't involved <laughs> in that decision. So don't, I don't lose all credibility, but I was, I was there during the, 
kind of aftermath of digesting it. That must have been trying to gi- digest it. Terrible. Yeah. Bank of America really needed some tums for yes. for countrywide. Yes, yeah, so countrywide. Yeah, I'm familiar. So just for our listeners, just in case you don't know or don't remember Countrywide, they were a subprime mortgage lender um, that was really active before the financial crisis. I actually was looking up some statistics on them. It turns out that they were responsible for 20% of all mortgages issued pre-financial crisis, Mm -hmm. which is insane. And it was something like 3.5% of America's GDP was accounted for by Countrywide, Wow, which is nuts. But anyway, um, back in the midst of the financial crisis, Bank of America decided to purchase Countrywide. It's 2008. Um, they bought them for $2.5 billion. And this is a decision they would come to regret in the next eight years because they spent around $20 billion in fees, on legal fees and bad mortgages and everything associated with Countrywide. This is my first fact. Okay. Okay. Got it. Taking notes. Okay, good. <laughs> You're very organized. In 2008, a London man who banked with Lloyd's got pretty mad at them. And so he changed his telephone banking password, which I did not know was a thing, to what in American English essentially translates to Lloyd's Blows Chunks. Okay. And the bank, some bank staffer got really mad and changed it to, no, it doesn't, without telling him, which he realized when he attempted to call call in. Um, The bank refused to let him change it to either Barclays is better or censorship. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's still trying to change his bank, bank password to this day. I'm not really sure. And then my third fact is that this morning, Bitcoin won the right to be a payment institution in Luxembourg and thus in the rest of the EU. And this is a big deal for them because they had been kind of blocked out of the EU for quite a few years. Luxembourg was or Bitcoin? Bitcoin. <laughs> okay. What, what's the price of Bitcoin now? That was also a, uh, a recent no topic on <clears throat> where the money is. And I don't know if you know this, but The Motley Fool actually owns a fraction of a Bitcoin. A fraction of a Bitcoin? That we purchased as part of a research project a couple years ago. So. How much is Bitcoin worth? I'm Googling it right now. It is worth $463.73 US dollars. That may be similar to a year and a half ago. See, nothing has changed since I left left this podcast. It is similar to a year and a half ago. It's slightly higher. Okay. All right. So, two truths and a lie. I'm going to say that the countrywide fact is a lie. Why do you think it's a lie? $20 billion mm-hmm. sounds low. It is low. Yes. Congratulations. This is mind-boggling to me. Do you want to know how much it actually was? I guess I do. Yeah. $64 billion. Wow. It's a lot of money. So, $2 billion purchased for two point five. Uh huh. Around that, I think they said that all when all was said and done, they spent around four billion with like all the shenanigans of like actually having to purchase it. That's incredible. Yeah. Sixty-four billion. Mm-hmm. And dollars. total, Bank of America has spent around one hundred and ninety-five billion dollars settling problems from the financial crisis. On the bright side, they're done with that, so maybe they can move on. <laughs> it's it's really crazy to to step back and think about it in aggregate. Um, like I said, we're we're less than ten years out of this cycle, or, or from the the event of the financial crisis. Which I think we're going to look back in forty years and be like, "Wow, two thousand sixteen was still really close to the financial crisis." Like, yeah, it's eight, only eight, eight years, years ago. or so is not in the scheme of history of like these huge banking crises. We look back, and eight years is still relatively close 
So it's going to take a long time for this to fully be in the rearview mirror, despite them having to still pay out hundred something billion. I think it'll still be around for a couple more years. Yeah, well, and things things changed a lot with the financial crisis, just in terms of regulations. So we don't really know a hundred percent how it's going to shake out. Um, and banks are still trying to come up to code. It takes longer than mm-hmm. eight or nine years to come up to code because right. um, they they're just so big and there's so many assets and they're complicated. Even Wells Fargo is complicated. Not as complicated as Bitcoin. Not as complicated as so Bitcoin, which Lux- is so Luxembourg. I can use my Bitcoin. All right, you can use your Bitcoin. Motley Fool Lux- Luxembourg. <laughs> we can finally open it with our with our Bitcoin with your stash. fraction yeah. of a Bitcoin. Yeah, I didn't know you could buy fractions of Bitcoins. I'm so uninformed on. Bitcoins. There's a lot of stuff you don't know. You don't want to know about Bitcoin. I get I get really intimidated. It's by an odd it. odd world under there. Yeah, some guy I went to middle school with is huge on Bitcoins, and he's a little strange. But he seems Isn't nice. Is that a truth or a lie? No, those he are... He may be playing you. Those are all truths. Do you think he's playing me? you think he's not strange? you think he's like average Joe? I don't know. It's, <laughs> a, it's, it's a definitely interesting community of, of understanding kind of what Bitcoin's worth. We were, when Matt and I were on the show, we were pretty adamantly not in favor of, of buying Bitcoin for as an investment. I, I know mm-hmm. it had a time where it basically 10x'd over a month. And then crashed with there was a, something. There was a hack, right? There was the Mount Gox kind of hack slash coding went haywire. I don't remember the details of it, but it essentially crashed like eighty percent overnight. Everyone got scared, and I think it has since kind of recovered to this four hundred dollar range. But it's been a year and a half. I haven't seen the emergence of Bitcoin in too many other places, so I'm still on the sidelines on Bitcoin. We'll keep our fractional Bitcoin, but my four hundred one k is not in Bitcoin yet. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Um, Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Let me know which which one is your favorite analyst. You have Jay Jenkins, Jordan Wathen, John Maxfield, Dan Kaplinger, and now David Hansen. Come on, people. Please. (laughs) Vote for David. Uh, Thank you guys very much for joining us. Thank you, David, and everyone have a great week.